Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Imagine you're married, you get pregnant, and everything seems to be going just as you hoped. During childbirth, though, something goes wrong. Your baby girl doesn't get enough oxygen and is born with cerebral palsy. You give her everything you can, and yet she lives in constant pain. She's had so many seizures that the joints in her hips have nearly been destroyed. Doctors have performed dozens of surgeries. You've nursed your daughter through all of them. But to find relief, they've proposed yet another painful operation. What do you do? For most, the choice is obvious. Allow the surgery and continue to hope that your child will find some comfort. But in 1993, a Saskatchewan farmer made a different choice, one that reverberated across the country. This is the history of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. I'm Kathy Kinzora. On this episode, I'll tell you the story of that little girl, Tracy Latimer, We explore that choice and unpack the long, simmering debate of what constitutes a mercy killing or murder. Robert Latimer was a typical prairie farmer, hardworking, clean living, and self-reliance. He would repair his own vehicles or replace the barn roof himself rather than hire someone. He was a low-key, no-BS kind of guy. At least that's how a McLean's article from 1994 described him. At the local grain elevators, where he sold the wheat grown on his farm in the small town of Wilkie, Saskatchewan, he was known as Laddie and viewed more as a friend than a customer. Latimer had grown up on the thousand-acre grain farm and had bought it from his family in 1976. He soon married his wife, Laura, and on November 23, 1980, their first child, a baby girl they named Tracy, was born. Laura's pregnancy had been normal, but during labor, something went wrong, very wrong. The fetal heart rate monitor wasn't working properly, and doctors didn't realize for several minutes that the baby's heart had stopped and that her brain had been deprived of oxygen. Because of this, Tracy was born with cerebral palsy, which led to severe mental and physical disabilities, including violent seizures. She had little or no voluntary control of her muscles, wore diapers, and couldn't walk, talk, or feed herself. Trina Woodrow, a 22-year-old neighbor, told McLean's in 1994, that feeding Tracy was especially challenging because she couldn't swallow. She would spit and cough up the little bits of food that her mom fed her by spoon. 
often taking 20 minutes to consume a tiny bit of baby food and milk. In the beginning, Tracy experienced seizures dozens of times a day. With medication, doctors were eventually able to get the number of seizures down to about five or six a day. Despite her disabilities, Tracy could smile at her parents and her three siblings. She liked campfires and music, and windshield wipers made her giggle. Over the years, the seizures and spastic motions caused tremendous damage to her frail little body. When she was 11, she needed to have steel rods and wires placed near her spine to strengthen her back. Tracy's hips had dislocated multiple times, and they were a source of constant pain. In the fall of 1993, doctors proposed hip surgery, but they said the joint was too damaged to reconstruct it properly. They would salvage what they could, but Tracy would be left with a flail joint. Basically, the femur would no longer be attached to her hip. Gary Boslaw wrote a book about the Latimer case in 2010 called Robert Latimer, A Story About Justice and Mercy. He spent a great deal of time with Robert Latimer while researching the book. He says after that appointment, Tracy's parents were devastated. Laura at one point said, maybe it's time to call Dr. Kevorkian. Nothing more was said. He didn't say anything, apparently. She didn't say anything more about it. But it put the idea in his head that this is the only decent thing that can be done for this girl. In spite of all the loving care that they'd given her over all these years, he knew that in his heart, he means that was the only thing that could really help her. So on the morning of Sunday, October 24th, Robert Latimer sent his wife and his three other kids to church. Robert had decided that his daughter had suffered enough, and he'd come up with a plan to end her life. He went outside and ran a pipe from the exhaust on his pickup truck to a window in the front cab. And he took her from her bed and put her in the cab of his truck and turned on the engine. He got in the back of the truck and watched through the window and he was ready to intervene if she seemed in distress. But she died relatively peacefully from the carbon monoxide. Then he put her back in the bed. Boslaw says that when Laura came home from church and discovered Tracy dead in her bed, She thought, finally, Tracy got a break. The coroner who came to the house was told that the girl died in her sleep. Police were suspicious, though, and when the coroner could not determine the cause of death, an autopsy was ordered. It revealed that Tracy had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Police decided to bring in Robert Latimer to an RCMP detachment for questioning. It didn't take long for Latimer to break down and confess to killing his daughter. Latimer sobbed as he told police in a taped interview that his priority had been to end Tracy's constant pain. Later that day, they took Latimer back to his farm and he showed them the pipes and the hoses he used to channel the toxic fumes into the cab of the truck as police recorded everything on videotape. He drew a diagram for police showing them exactly how he had done it and where Tracy had been placed in the truck, her body propped up with rags. Latimer told police his daughter had died peacefully. He said, she just fell asleep. If she had started to cry, I would have taken her out of there. 
at no time during this confession did Latimer have a lawyer with him. On November 4th, 1993, 11 days after Tracy died, her father, Robert Latimer, was charged with first-degree murder. When the case hit the news, it ignited a polarizing debate that still exists to this day. Was Robert Latimer a cold-blooded killer or a compassionate father? Was this a case of murder or mercy killing? At the time of Tracy Latimer's death, euthanasia was already the subject of fierce debate. It seemed that every few months in the early 90s, we heard news that Dr. Jack Kevorkian had helped another terminally ill person end their life in the United States. Kevorkian, a pathologist from Michigan, became the face of the assisted death movement, ultimately helping over 130 people end their lives. The first death he assisted with occurred in June 1990. A 54-year-old woman with Alzheimer's died after being hooked up to a homemade suicide device in Kevorkian's parked van. It allowed the woman to administer a lethal injection to herself. The flamboyant Kevorkian, who became known as Dr. Death, not related to the podcast by the same name, had his medical license revoked and was charged and acquitted numerous times. Kevorkian was eventually convicted of second-degree murder and served eight years in jail after he was shown giving a lethal injection to a 52-year-old man with ALS or Lou Gehrig's on the TV show 60 Minutes. In Canada, assisted death also made national headlines and sparked fierce and emotional debate when Sue Rodriguez asked the Supreme Court to let a doctor help her die. Rodriguez, a single mom from British Columbia, was diagnosed with ALS at the age of 41. ALS is brutal. It's degenerative and incurable and means that you lose control of your body a little bit at a time. She wanted the right to end her life on her own terms to decide how, when, and who controlled the way she would die. Rodriguez made this appeal through the media. I will continue to seek what justice I can under the Canadian law. And I can only hope that somewhere I will find recognitions for my rights as a person. Thank you for listening. At the time, assisted death was illegal in Canada and everywhere else in the world except Switzerland. So Rodriguez took her argument all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, asking for permission to end her life with the help of her doctor. When the court said no, Rodriguez responded by saying, the court may have spoken, but I have the last word. On February 12, 1994, Rodriguez ended her life with the assistance of an unidentified doctor. Her friend and supporter, federal member of parliament Sven Robinson, was at her side. They had become close during her battle. She peacefully lapsed into unconsciousness and stopped breathing approximately two hours later. The doctor then left. I was asked about the identity of the doctor and indicated that I had been requested by Sue to respect the confidentiality of the doctor and that I would do so. 
The death of Rodriguez led to a renewed public debate on the troubling issue of euthanasia and forced the Canadian government to take another look at whether it should be legalized. But the case of Tracy Latimer was different. She was a child, and her father made the decision for her. Robert Latimer's trial began on November 7, 1994. On day one, the jury watched the video police made shortly after Latimer was arrested, which showed him giving officers a tour of his family farm and calmly explaining how he killed Tracy. Tracy's doctor also took the stand and explained to the jury that the 12-year-old couldn't walk, talk, or feed herself. She had little or no control over her muscles, but she could smile at times. In the prisoner's box, the clean-shaven, graying Latimer periodically looked behind him at the spectators in the courtroom, which included many of his friends and supporters. Various witnesses depicted Robert Latimer as a loving, caring father, including his wife, Laura. When she took the stand, Laura told the court that for 12 years, her husband saw to Tracy's every need, bathing her and rocking her for hours on his knee. She testified that Tracy had to be force-fed, carried everywhere, and heavily medicated to stop the seizures that ravaged her body, and that during Tracy's last year of life, she was in a great deal of pain. She had dropped to a mere 40 pounds. In comparison, the weight for an average healthy 12-year-old girl should be closer to 90 pounds. When Laura was asked how she felt when Tracy died, Laura testified, I was happy for her because she didn't have to handle the pain anymore. My daughter's birth was sadder than her death. I grieved for Tracy when she was born, not when she died. In his closing argument, defense lawyer Mark Brayford argued that Latimer had no choice except to end his daughter's pain. The situation cried out for action. The prosecution, however, led by Crown Attorney Randy Kirkham, argued that Latimer had no right to wipe out a precious life. He said that it was not open season on the disabled. Kirkham accused Latimer of acting out of convenience to make his own life simpler. Disabled activist Pat Danforth watched the trial and was shocked by what she saw. She felt there was so much focus on Robert Latimer and very little time was spent on talking about the value of Tracy's life. There really appeared to be no understanding of the value of the life of somebody who... um, who is nonverbal and and has cognitive disabilities. Danforth blames the media for going out of its way to portray Latimer in a sympathetic way and not focusing enough on Tracy. Krista Carr from the Canadian Association of Community Living, which advocates for people with intellectual disabilities, says that Tracy's life wasn't given the same value because she was disabled. Had Tracy Latimer not had cerebral palsy, had Tracy Latimer been a 12-year-old child who did not have any kind of diagnosed disability, and their father put them in a car, in a garage, asphyxiated them, put them in their bed, 
and say they died in their sleep and then later ended up having to confess to the fact that they were murdered, we wouldn't have even had this discourse, right? This, we wouldn't have had this, this big, you know, Canada-wide media um, and public outcry around this. People would have thought it was horrible and terrible and this man murdered his daughter and he should be put away forever. At the end of the trial, the jury took just four hours to reach a verdict. They found Latimer not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of second-degree murder. He automatically received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 10 years. When Latimer asked if he wanted to make a comment, he told the court, I still feel I did what was right. I don't think you people are being human. Latimer's wife, Laura, spoke to reporters outside the court. The justice system can take him and they can put him through whatever hell they want to. Whatever hell they put him through will not begin to match the hell that our little girl went through. Reaction to the verdict came from every corner of the country, and opinions were vastly different. Disabled advocates and the disabled applauded the verdict and sentence, saying that taking someone's life is never justifiable. Here's Pat Danforth again. It's always difficult for me when, uh, when Mr. Latimer um, talks about mercy killing, when this clearly was not a, any, in any definition a form of mercy killing. It was a form of premeditated murder. For others, though, it wasn't so black and white. What Latimer did might have been illegal, but they thought his sentence was way too harsh. He and his family had suffered enough. A spokesperson from the national organization Dying with Dignity told the media that justice isn't justice unless it shows some mercy. And 10 years in prison shows no mercy. And still others believed that what Robert Latimer did was justified. They felt there are situations when euthanasia is the answer, and this was one of them. After Robert Latimer was found guilty, his lawyer filed an appeal with Saskatchewan's High Court. In the meantime, Latimer was released on bail. His neighbor posted a $10,000 bond to secure his release. Latimer's neighbor, Trina Woodrow, expressed her support for the farmer. I want the sentence reduced. I don't want 10 years. That's way too much. Way too much. What would be reasonable, do you think, in this case? You know, no. I don't know, yeah. Right now, it's where it's good. This is where he belongs. It's his farm here, doing his farming, doing his things with his family. The quiet grain farmer received thousands of letters and cards of support from people across the country. And they were sending money, too. Nearly $100,000. Supporters wanted to help pay Latimer's legal bills. Laura Latimer told the media that her husband asked that the money be sent back. He appreciated the moral support, but couldn't accept donations. Petitions were signed and rallies were held in support of Robert Latimer, as the case went before the Saskatchewan Appeal Court. His lawyer argued the life sentence was cruel and unusual punishment and that his confession should be thrown out because Latimer didn't understand his rights. It didn't matter, though, 
The Saskatchewan Court of Appeal denied Latimer's appeal. And the case was on the way to the Supreme Court of Canada when a shocking development was revealed. And it was only found out by accident by uh, Laura, I think, was at the swimming pool with one of her kids and a neighbor mentioned that she'd been phoned by the, by the police to ask her these questions. And this is after the trial. And so when the Supreme Court said, found out this, they said, well, we're going to throw that trial out and uh, have, have to have a retrial because this was uh, clearly wrong. In a twist suitable for a Hollywood film, the prosecutor from the original trial was accused of tampering with the jurors. Randy Kirkham, the Crown Attorney at the original trial, had instructed the RCMP to call around to prospective jurors and ask them about their positions on issues like religion, abortion, and mercy killing. RCMP officers spoke to about 30 people, and five of them ended up on the jury. Kirkham didn't reveal this to the defense. The prosecutor was eventually charged with obstructing justice, but he was found not guilty. The judge in the case said Kirkham used bad judgment, but he didn't break the law. And so the Supreme Court of Canada ordered a new trial because of the jury tampering. Robert Latimer was furious. He had hoped they would simply overturn his conviction and set him free. Latimer spoke to reporters outside his home after the decision. Visibly shaken, he said, they have no limits on how you can torture a person and they will carry forward with it. To me, they are a bunch of backwoods, bloodthirsty butchers. These strong words were totally out of character for Latimer, who was usually pretty reserved when talking with reporters. He also told the media he had no regrets about Tracy's death, maintaining that he didn't do anything wrong. He was simply protecting his daughter from years of further torture in the form of constant pain. Advocates for the disabled were happy with the decision to retry Latimer, and they wanted something more. The Council of Canadians with Disabilities is pleased to hear that there is going to be another trial, but we think the trial must be one for first-degree murder. This is not a mercy killing. There is no mercy in killing someone who wants to live. And Tracy never had the opportunity to say yay or nay. The second trial went much the same as the first trial. And in the end, Robert Latimer was found guilty of second-degree murder. When the jury read the verdict, Latimer's wife, Laura, jumped from her seat and screamed, no, 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 before breaking down in tears. Latimer rushed from the prisoner's box and tried to comfort his weeping wife by saying, it's all right, it's all right. Laura wasn't the only one shocked that day. Four jury members literally gasped in surprise when the judge announced that Latimer would receive an automatic life sentence. You see, they mistakenly believed that there was some flexibility with sentencing. They later told reporters that they thought if they found Latimer guilty, they would be able to advocate for a more lenient sentence. But that's not the case. You see, second-degree murder in Canada comes with a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years. Regardless of the circumstances, if you are found guilty, 
you must serve at least 10 years before you are eligible for full parole. The only flexibility the judge has is to increase the amount of time you must serve before parole. It cannot be decreased. However, there was something the jury could have done if they had known about it. Here's author Gary Boslaw again. The jury was clearly sympathetic with Latimer, but they did not understand that they had the power to find him not guilty. They didn't understand the uh, principle of jury nullification, which gives the jury, it's an old principle of law that gives the jury complete independence in, in coming to a decision. Regardless of what the law says, they can, if somebody's technically guilty, they have the right to uh, find him not guilty. They didn't understand that. They thought they had an obligation to find him guilty because he was technically guilty. It's no surprise that not a lot of jurors know this. Jury nullification isn't exactly something we all sit around talking about. It's a concept that goes back to the Magna Carta. Jurors can ignore the law and acquit a person if they feel justice would not be achieved by a conviction. The catch is, the defense is not allowed to tell jurors about jury nullification. So remember this if you ever get called for jury duty. When it seemed like all hope was lost for Robert Latimer, in the strangest turn of events, the judge at Latimer's trial found a way around the mandatory minimum. Justice Ted Noble granted Latimer a rare constitutional exemption from the mandatory minimum penalty for second-degree murder. Judge Noble explained that for Latimer, the minimum sentence would constitute cruel and unusual punishment, which Canadians are protected from via our Constitution. So instead, he sentenced Latimer to two years less a day, one year in jail and one year on house arrest on his farm. In his first show of emotion, Robert Latimer wiped away tears when the judge made the announcement in court. Disabled rights groups were outraged. They believed there had been no justice for Tracy. Pat Danforth, the activist you heard from earlier, was among those who spoke out during and after the trial. She still gets emotional remembering that time. It was more than frightening because, as I said, I attend... I makes me cry and it it does i i attended the trial i was in saskatchewan on the news media um i was interviewed i because i i i knew i knew some of the issues i was comfortable um, even though i am uh, uh, reliant on a wheelchair and uh, you know obviously have a disability i had been on the news and uh, about 15 minutes after i'd been on my phone rang, and I answered it. And uh, and this man said to me, "You better stop doing these interviews, or you'll end up like Tracy was did." And then hung up on me. I, I I have never been threatened in my life like that before. The Crown also disagreed with the judge's controversial decision, and so they appealed. And on November 1998, five years after Tracy died the Saskatchewan Appeal Court said the judge erred in granting Latimer a constitutional exemption from the mandatory sentence. The 10-year sentence was reimposed. Latimer was heading back to prison. 
A poll taken around this time indicated that 73% of Canadians felt that Latimer's sentence was too harsh. Krista Carr, who you heard from earlier, said the poll results were incredibly disheartening. It sent a message to everybody that had a disability to say that, you know what, generally the public does not feel um, that your life is as valuable as another individual. And so it's, 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 it is inherently very difficult and problematic. After his sentence was reimposed, Robert Latimer had one last chance to plead his case. In 2001, it got kicked up again to the Supreme Court of Canada. On the day of the hearing, Latimer was asked if his lengthy legal battle had changed his mind about what he did. Would he do it again? Would he kill his daughter? Latimer, in his typical no BS manner, told reporters, of course I would. It's a very unnatural existence. Uh, and with the combination of the rods in the back, the tube in the stomach, the leg cut off and flopping around, the bed sores, uh, I don't know. People just think, oh, well, she was a happy little girl that studied eight hours a day at school. Uh, I, I cannot understand these people. The Supreme Court disagreed and rejected Latimer's appeal he was sent to prison to start serving his sentence. The unapologetic farmer had hit the end of the legal road. That was it. The highest court of the land said he must serve his time for the crime he committed. When the Supreme Court issued its ruling, it did leave open one possibility for Latimer. It suggested that he might want to apply to the federal government for a pardon. Latimer wasn't interested at the time. To apply for a pardon, you must admit you are sorry for committing the crime. And that was something he had no intention of doing, ever. So at the age of 47, Robert Latimer began serving his sentence at a medium security prison near Victoria, British Columbia. A nationwide group called the Friends of Robert Latimer didn't give up. They held rallies outside the prison where Latimer was now living. They signed petitions. And 400 members of the group volunteered to serve a portion of Latimer's sentence on his behalf. And you might not remember this, but Latimer's case reached outside of Canada too. In 2010, Ozzy Osbourne released a song called Latimer's Mercy, which Ozzy confirmed was inspired by the Saskatchewan grain farmer. The song lyrics include the line, The sun shines on this deadly new morning. The church bells ring an early warning. Ozzy said he wasn't taking sides in the debate with the song. He said it's impossible to say what is right or wrong unless you are in the same position. While in prison, Latimer began apprenticeships to be an electrician and a carpenter. His family's grain farm in Wilkie was run by a manager. Life went on for the rest of the Latimer family without Robert. 
Then in 2007, after serving seven years of his sentence, Latimer was eligible to apply for day parole. The hearing should have been nothing more than a formality. His assigned parole officer was recommending that Latimer be released to a halfway house. But the three-member parole board hearing the case denied Latimer day parole. The board ruled that Latimer posed an undue risk to society if he was released because he had not admitted his actions were wrong and he lacked emotional insight. They recommended he receive further counselling in jail. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association called the decision a national disgrace. Two months later, the decision was overturned and Latimer was immediately granted day parole. At his request, he was sent to a halfway house in Ottawa. He wanted to be near federal officials so that he could continue to advocate his case. He was still hoping to get another trial. In 2010, Robert Latimer received full parole. But parole comes with restrictions that will remain in place for the rest of his life. Parole officers check up on him every few months. And so that might be why Latimer has changed his mind about seeking a federal pardon. In July of 2018, he asked then-Federal Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould to use her powers under the criminal code to review his case and pardon him. In a letter cc'd to the Prime Minister, Latimer's lawyer, Jason Grattle, wrote that because doctors wouldn't give Tracy the pain medication she required, Robert Latimer was forced to take matters into his own hands. He was forced to break the law. The lawyer says that Robert Latimer was a victim of medical malpractice. The federal government has yet to respond to Latimer's request. Just like the Latimer case, the issue of euthanasia is not a simple one. And like the Latimer case, it has been in and out of the news in Canada since the 90s. Following the death of Sue Rodriguez in 1994, the federal government convened a special Senate committee to examine the issue of euthanasia and medically assisted death, and to consider whether there were situations where it could be legalized. When the Senate committee released its report in June 95, it voted 7-3 in favor of keeping all forms of medically assisted dying illegal. The issue remained on the back burner until almost 10 years later when in October 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada was asked to reconsider its earlier ruling in the Sue Rodriguez case. This time, the court unanimously said yes to medically assisted death in certain situations. In response, the Canadian government in 2016 made medically assisted death legal in Canada for adults whose death is reasonably foreseeable. To be clear, that means that their death must be imminent. The law also requires a person to prove mental competency when they first request an assisted death, and again, just before it's administered. So that means they must be conscious and mentally sound at the moment they give their final consent for a lethal injection. Almost 7,000 Canadians have received medical help to end their lives since Canada legalized it three years ago. The federal government has come under pressure to make the legislation less restrictive. As advocates say, the second competency requirement is a problem. 
In some cases, some people who'd previously been approved for assisted death were denied the service because they lost the ability to give last-minute consent as their conditions got worse. This issue was highlighted in 2018 when a 57-year-old Nova Scotia woman told the media that she was being forced to die sooner than she wanted to. Audrey Parker, who was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer, which had metastasized to her bones and had a fatal tumor in her brain. Parker feared that if she waited, she may be unable to pass the competency requirements later on and be denied a medically assisted death. On November 1, 2018, Parker was given a series of lethal injections while she was surrounded by her family and a few friends at her apartment in Halifax. The government has also come under pressure to change the requirement that someone's death must be imminent. People with incurable diseases have argued they too should be allowed the choice to die with dignity. An argument that Sue Rodriguez made back in 1991 when she famously said, if I cannot give consent to my own death, whose body is this? Who owns my life? 28 years later, in September 2019, a judge in Quebec agreed with Rodriguez when she overturned the section of the legislation that required natural death be reasonably foreseeable. She said it was unconstitutional and gave the feds until March 2020 to come up with something new. Lawyers for the federal government argued that the foreseeable death criterion is necessary to protect vulnerable people who are suffering from serious ailments but aren't fatally ill from using the law as a way to die by suicide. People who are living in poverty or people like Tracy who are living with disabilities who may be coerced into a medically assisted death. The current legislation in Canada applies to adults only. It's not for children. Something that is allowed in the Netherlands and Belgium. Those countries report 16 cases of children dying by euthanasia since 2002. At the end of 2018, the Canadian government received a report from an expert panel which looked at the possibility of extending medical assistance in dying to mature minors, people under the age of 18, considered by doctors to be capable of directing their own care. The report said that while giving mature minors control over their deaths might alleviate pain and suffering, it could also have the unintended consequences of making terminally ill minors feel pressure to request doctor-assisted death in order to protect their families from financial or emotional distress. Despite the changes in law since Tracy died, Robert Latimer's options would be the same today as they were in 1993. Even if children were included in Canada's medically-assisted dying legislation, it's unlikely that Tracy would have been eligible. Tracy may have been in immense pain, but her death was not imminent, and her cognitive disability would have prevented her from providing consent. Like in 1993, Tracy wouldn't have been able to choose if she wanted to live or die. 
Robert Latimer has maintained a private life since he was released from prison. Now 66 years old, he continues to live and work his family farm north of Wilkie, Saskatchewan. He told a reporter in 2017 that strangers occasionally recognize him when he travels to nearby Battleford, but the circus is long over. Latimer remains steadfast 26 years after Tracy's death that what he did was right. Thanks for joining me on this look back at a story that gripped the Canadian consciousness through the 90s and beyond. I know this is a very delicate subject with many different opinions. I hope we were able to present all sides in a fair and complete way. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode of History of the 90s. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people listening to this podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard on this episode and links to all of our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s.